The following presentation is brought to you by KMmedia.pro. Please visit KMmedia.pro for more information. Now stay right where you are as we present. Welcome to Positive Talk Radio, evolving ideas, one conversation at a time. Great guests, dynamic stories and interviews, plus new thoughts on a wide range of topics and concepts. I hope that you'll hang with me, Kevin McDonald, my friends, and of course, you, as together we work to understand why we are all here and what we can do to make our world a better place for all of us to be happy, be kind, and live in peace together. Yep, that's Positive Talk Radio. everybody to another episode of positive talk radio i'm glad you're here and i hope that you'll stay with us for the entire interview because it's going to be a good one i fear i don't fear actually anything much and i'm really excited to be talking to terry tucker terry how are you today sir i am great kevin thanks for having me on i'm looking forward to talking with you it is great to have you here and uh, you know your life story is something that uh, we can all emulate a bit and uh, it also, you know, you're also a motivational coach and you work with people to help them live the best lives that they can. You know, I wanted to ask you because I sense this a lot. I get this a lot in, in the state of humanity right now. And I want to know if you're if in your work, you get the same thing. I get two questions that are asked a lot. First of all is, is this all there is? There's got to be more than, than just, you know, what I'm experiencing so far. And the other one is, um, I, hold on. <laughs> have you ever had a senior moment? No, it's, it's. Uh, I'll probably uh, have several during this conversation. <laughs> and the other is, why am I here? Why, why, what is, what am I here to do? And uh, those are two are the questions that seem to be confronting and confounding most of us. Do you find that in your work? I, I, I do. And, and I think, the, you know, we get, we get too caught up in things. I, I, you know, to answer the second question, I think the answer is to serve. And, you know, I, I have a strong faith, but I don't put that on anybody else. And I know a lot of people don't have that. But if you're not going to serve your God, to serve your fellow man. And, you know, I, I think it's pretty simple. And I think your purpose, whatever that is in life, and, and you know, people, especially today, you know, are like, hey, it's all about me. I got news for you. It's not. You're unique, but you're not special. You know, but all these people that, hey, you know, I, I deserve a trophy. I deserve, you know, I got a college degree, so I should be in the corner office with the company car and the expense account and all that. Yeah. So you got to earn that. You know, that's not something that, that we get. And and no, this is not all that this is. If, if your life is that pathetic, and, and, and I, that's probably a very strong word, but if your life is not where you want it to be, I don't know what you're looking for because the only person who's going to change that is you. And, and that's kind of where I, I, I get frustrated with people. You know, I, I've been on this 10-year cancer journey and people come up to me and be like, you know, Terry, I could, I could never do, I could never do what you did. And, and sometimes, depending on my mood, I'll be kind of a smart aleck and be like, yeah, you're right, you can't, because you've already decided in your mind that you can't do this. Why would you go into something with, you know, with the attitude that I, I, I can't do this? You know, this, this, I'm not going to be successful at this. If you're going to do that, just stay in bed, get a couple extra hours of sleep instead of getting out. So I, 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 there is more to life than, you know, just getting up, going to work, kind of the Groundhog Day, you know, movie philosophy. But that's up to you. That That's you trying to find your purpose. And I always say people live a casual life. And because of that, their dreams, their goals, their ambitions become a casualty of that unplanned living. Oh, very nice. I like that play on words. That was very good. You know, the, it seems to me that for a lot of us, there is a disconnect. There, the, dis, the disconnect seems to be that, is this all there is? I, as if they are the recipient of something rather than driving the bus, as it were. Yeah, you, you you make a great point. It This is your life to live. You've been given unique gifts and talents, and it's up to you to find out what your purpose is. And and I had a, I used to coach high school basketball in many hats that I've worn. And I remember one time a former player that I had coached 
had moved to the area in Colorado where my wife and I live, and we had had dinner with her and her fiance. And I remember saying to her one night, you know, I'm really excited that you're living close and I can watch you find and live your purpose. She got real quiet for a while and she kind of looked at me and she's like, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth. And once you find that reason, live it. And I guess maybe I should back up for a second because a lot of times people equate their purpose with their job or their profession. That doesn't have to be the case. Your, you know, your job could be over here. It's something you do to pay the bills, but your purpose in life is to, to write or to paint or to volunteer or to coach or, or whatever it is. And I always tell, especially young people, if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then, it's going to be too late to go back and do them. You know, it's interesting. As we were sitting here talking, I was reminded of a guy who uh, lived in downtown Seattle. And he was a tuba player. And they used to call him Tommy, Tommy Tuba. And he was homeless. And he would sit on a particular bench in Pioneer Square every day. And he would play the tuba. And that was what he felt was his calling that made him happy. And unfortunately he was, uh, he was killed by a couple of guys that are now in prison for it. But, uh, um, because apparently they couldn't stand the fact that this homeless guy was happy and, and was self-contained, but so it doesn't matter if you are a CEO, I've known lots of CEOs who are in, married to three, four times, They've, they've got lots of money and they've got a nice car, but they're not happy. They're not happy in life. They're not doing what they choose to do. And, and, uh, and I know in your work that you, and by the way, we're talking with uh, Terry Tucker. Let's get your website out real quick while we, while we can. Motivationalcheck.com. Now there's an easy one. And, and uh, he has been, <clears throat> for those of you who, I, I get the I big, get the biggest kick out of some people because it, Terry, what they'll say is, "Well, sure, he's a motivational coach. He's probably his life has been rainbows and cupcakes his whole life, and he's never had to struggle like I'm struggling. My life is so hard, and he's a motivational coach. He's happy. It must be easy. You've been fighting cancer for ten years." I have. I, I've been fighting a, a rare form of cancer, uh, a rare form of melanoma, which most people think of as a sun disease. You're too much of exposure to the sun. My form of melanoma appears on the bottom of the feet and the palms of the hands. And I sort of joke, I never remember, you know, as a kid laying out with my feet up in the air. So how I got it on the bottom of my, you know, my feet, I, I, I have no idea. But But that cancer has led me to be on a drug for five years that gave me severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. So imagine having the flu every week for five years. And that was not a cure. That was just to try to keep the disease at bay. 2018, I had my left foot amputated. 2020, I had my left leg amputated. And I found out I had tumors in my lungs. And I'm still being treated for those tumors in my lungs now. So, I, but, you know, and, and that sounds like a dark and ugly journey. And it certainly has been. But I'll tell you this, cancer has made me a better human being. How so? It's made me appreciate the things in life and realize what's really important. You know, it, it's, not, it's not the job. It's not the money. It's not the power. It's not the prestige. None of that stuff comes with you at the end. What comes with you at the end is love, the love you put in the world. And I remember when I was a, a young kid, I, I admired a man by the name of John Wooden, who was a coach at UCLA. Uh, the all best coach of all time. Yeah, an amazing man. And, you know, I was I, I was almost like a disciple of Wooden. I, I mean, I, I hung on every interview. I read everything in Sports Illustrated about him. And I remember one day I was listening. I, I was probably 13, 14 years old. I was listening to an interview he was giving on TV. And I, mean, I literally had a pad of paper and, and pencil in my hand. And I'm writing stuff down. And it's the end of the interview, and, and the, the commentator asks him, 
you know, of all the things that you've done, uh, what do you think is the most important thing that you want your players to learn? And, you know, I'm looking for some great X's and O's and stuff like that, you know. And he says, I want my, my team to understand that the most important or my teams to, to understand the most important thing in life is love. And I'm like, no, coach, come on, give me some good X's and O's, you know? I'm like, no, love, what are, you, what are you talking about? We're guys, we don't talk about love and stuff like that. No, we need X's and O's. But it was, you know, I want my players to understand the importance of loving what they do for a living, loving themselves, loving the people that in their lives. I mean, love is, is really the foundation of everything we should do in life. You know, if you don't like your job, if you don't love your job, then find another job. And I know that's easy to say, but at the same time, if you don't love what you're doing, why are you doing it? There are myriads of reasons for that. None of them are good, quite frankly. You know, and speaking of which, uh, you know, you can't take it with you. There was a guy that uh, I don't know if you've heard this story, but there was a guy that swore that he was going to take everything with him when he died. And he made his wife promise that when he died, she would make sure that everything went with him. So when he when he did pass away and he was there and and had an open casket uh, and she did that, she wrote a check and put it in the casket. <laughs> so so technically he took everything with him, but he really didn't because he couldn't cash to the check. <laughs> I don't think the first National Bank of St. Peter was open up there, you know. <laughs> no. And and the, that's, the, that's the thing is that um, I have a good friend who uh, said to me, when you pass away, I want you to spend your last dollar right before you do that. I don't, you know, I want you to live your life completely and fully. And and so that's what I'm trying to do is is to live my life as best I can as fully. And I know that you're doing the same same thing. And it's been it's been hard. But, you know, you've got such a remarkable spirit. Where does that come from? I, I think a, a lot of things. I think it started with my parents. You know, I, I am I'm the oldest of three boys. You, you, you can't tell this from looking at my voice, but I'm six foot eight inches tall, played basketball in college. I have a brother that's six foot seven who was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame's baseball team. Another brother who's six foot six was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers the National Basketball Association. My dad was 6'5". So I sort of joke that, you know, when when we were growing up, if you sat behind our family in church, not a prayers chance you're going to see anything that was that was going on, you know. But our five foot eight inch mother was the boss. You know, it didn't matter how big, tall, strong we were, whatever mom said went. And my parents taught us the value of family, you know, and, and supporting each other and caring for each other and loving each other. And my parents practiced what I call the sort of divide and conquer parenting, where it's like, you know, all right, Terry's got a game over here. Dad's going to go to that. Larry's got to practice over here. Mom's going to go to that. It, you know, and my parents did everything to support us. And I remember uh, when I graduated from college, I had a job and and my my I told my dad, my youngest brother was in high school. I said, I'm not going to Brian's game tonight. He had a basketball game. And my dad looked at me and he's like, yeah, you are. I'm like, uh, excuse me? I, I'm a man. You know, I, I have my own job, you know, and he's like, he said, you're going to the game. I said, no, I'm going to go work out. He's like, no, you're going to the game. And and he reminded me, he's like, this is what our family has been about, about carrying each other, supporting each other, loving each other. Your brother needs you right now. And my dad was right. And, and I found another time to go work out. And I, and I went to the game, you know, but I think it started there. It certainly has started with, uh, you know, my parents taught us about the importance of faith, of being part, you know, uh, of something that's bigger than yourself. That was something I learned during team sports, you know, you realize on a team that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. It really is. It really is. Now, I was an athlete. I know it's hard to figure that out now. But when I was young, I was an athlete and, and um, I was on a football team. And, you know, if you're on a football team, you're one of 11 and yet you're all one because if one fails, you all fail. If one succeeds, you all succeed. And, uh, it's, it's, I think that is a great metaphor for life. If we all, if we all work together to succeed and to help each other and to work together for each other, we'll succeed. Um, if we don't, we're not going to. We will. And, and, and Mike Krzyzewski, the former coach of, of Duke, who just retired this year, used to have a saying, and it, and it fit great with basketball because, you know, there's five players 
on a basketball team. And he used to, he used to use the fist concept that, you know, individually, you know, our, our fingers are, are not very strong, but collectively you put that, that those five fingers together, like you put five guys on a basket or five women on a basketball team, you put them together. Now you've got a fist and a fist is a whole lot stronger than an individual finger. So I, I you're right that you, we don't, it's hard for us to get things done individually. I, I remember I, re- I read a book a couple of years ago called Legacy. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to read it, but it's a it's an amazing book. It's about the they're called the All Blacks because their uniform is all black, but it's about the New Zealand national rugby team. Oh, they made a movie. They made a movie about that. No, that was South Africa with Matt Damon. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. No, no. That, yeah, exactly. I mean, that was uh, Nelson Mandela and, and Matt Damon in that. But this was this is about um, the New Zealand national rugby team, who by all accounts are the most expe- successful sports franchise in any sport in any country of all times. And part of the book was about how they recruit or hire you know, players. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know anything about rugby, so I'm not even going to try to pretend. But what I thought was interesting is you would think that a, a, a team of that caliber, they are hiring for technical expertise. I'm a great rugby player at whatever position I'm being recruited for. And to an extent, they do. But the two things that I, I found amazing about them in terms of how they hire is the first thing is character. What kind of person are you? You know, how do you handle defeat? You know, do you, do you go home and kick the dog and punch your wife? Or, hey, do, you know, what did I learn from this? And and how can we get better? And the second thing was humility. You know, and, and I thought back to how many job interviews I've had where I've gone into it where it's like, man, I better have all the answers to all these questions. And what they feel is that you don't need to have all the answers because you individually won't have the answers us collectively, us as a team, will figure out the answers. So you're right. It's not about us. It's about us collectively, not us individually. It is impossible for one person to rise to the level that they are capable of without support. Yeah. That's why you have to have a support team. Yeah. Yeah. There's no such thing as an overnight success, despite what all these people think, you know, it's like, I just burst onto the scene and here I am. It's like, no, no. Number one, you probably failed a ton before you got there. And number two, you do, you've got to have that support system, whether it's a family, whether, you know, it's other people within the organization, whatever it is, we don't, we don't do life by ourselves. We're not good at it by ourselves. We're better at it together. You know, my favorite story is about a uh, group of guys that were considered to be an overnight success in 1964. They were on the Ed Sullivan show and they were like, they burst onto the scene. I read their biography. They spent years in Hamburg, Germany in a sweaty little club, uh, working six to eight hours a night on stage, six days a week for, and literally for years to learn their craft. Nobody does it all by themselves. Nobody's an overnight success. And they had each other to, to, to rely upon and to, and to work together. And they became a fabulous unit because of that. That's, that's, that's really is what you kind of what you're talking about, isn't it? It, it really is. I, I mean, you know, you look at teams and things like that, whether it's a sports team or whether it's a business or, or whatever it is, nobody does it by themselves and, and, and nobody can do it by themselves. And, and, you know, I, I, I go back to my faith and, you, you know, you, you know, it says in the Bible, you know, God made man. And then God realized, hmm, not good for man to be alone, you know. And so, you know, put man to sleep, take man's rib, make woman. And I don't think that was so much about, you know, husband, wife kind of situation as much as it was. We need each other. We're better together than we are separately. We can get more done. We can accomplish more than thinking, hey, it, it's all about me. I've got all the answers. Well, I mean, I'm 61 years old. I don't have all the answers, and I don't think I'm ever going to have all the answers. So <laughs> it scares me sometimes when people, especially younger people, think, hey, I figured it all out. It's like, well, good. Write a book because I like to read it because I haven't figured it out yet. Well, I'll figure it out when I get to ask St. Peter. Yeah, now, exactly. I got to ask you about this, sir. 
Can we, you know, because yeah, let me oh, take some notes. What do you got here? You know, exactly. Oh, and by the way, the the uh, group that I was talking about that went to Hamburg, they're the Beatles. I didn't mention that. Uh, and there are people that are going, who would that be? I don't know who that is. But anyway, so <clears throat> I just had to point that out. But but it's you know, even though with all the struggles that you've had, your 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 passion and your energy is so so high you must have a great support system oh i do i totally totally i you know i have i have it's just my wife and daughter you know in our immediate family my brothers are still with us and my mom even is almost 87 years old still with us and i and and, you know i talk about what's gotten me here which are my three f's which are faith family you know and friends and when i got cancer you know, we're, we're great here in the United States. You know, we start down a road towards a goal or something like that. And then we run into an impediment. Boom. You know, we stop. Oh, no, sorry. I can't get around that. I've got to quit. But we just don't do that. We got to blame somebody. We got to find somebody to blame. And so people ask me when I got cancer, well, who do you blame? And I'm like, what, what do you mean? Who do I blame? I, I don't blame anybody. And then they knew I have a strong faith. Like, well, you, you must blame God. And I sort of joke. I'm like, you know, I don't think God got up on a Tuesday morning, checked his to-do list and said, Terry Tucker, cancer today. I don't I don't think that at all. But what I do think God has done is given me the strength to get through that. So that's the faith component. And then my family, it's, it's my wife and daughter. And I remember after I had my leg amputated and I had the tumors in my lungs, my oncologist wanted to put me on chemotherapy. And I looked at him and I'm like, is, is it going to save my life? He's like, yeah, probably not, but it might buy you some more time. And I was like, well, I was eight years into this fight. And I was like, well, if the outcome's going to be the same, I'm not sure I want to, you know, go through all that ugliness, but I'll go home and talk to my family. So I go home and I start telling my wife and daughter what's going on. And my daughter's like, all right, we need a family meeting. I'm like, family meeting? There's three of us. It's not like we got a board or something like that, you know? It's like, so we end up sitting around the kitchen table and individually talking about how they feel about me having chemotherapy. And then my daughter's like, all right, let's take a vote. How many people want dad to have chemotherapy? And my wife and daughter raised their hand. I'm like, wait a minute. Am I getting outvoted here for something I don't want to do? But I remembered back when I was in the police academy, another hat that I wore, and our defensive tactics instructor used to have us bring a photograph of the people we love the most to class. And as we were learning techniques to defend ourselves, we were to look at that photograph because he reasoned you'll fight harder for the people you love then you will fight for yourself. So I took chemotherapy, not because I wanted to, but because I love my family more than I loved myself. So that's family, faith, family, and then friends. I think when you get a chronic or a terminal illness, you really find out who your friends are. You really find out who the people are going to, you know, be there with you in your corner. And, you know, I always tell people, if you don't have people, your inner circle, I mean, if those aren't people that care about you, that love you, that support you, that uplift you, and probably most importantly, are willing to sacrifice their relationship with you to tell you the truth, then you need to get those people out of your life. I mean, I want people in my life that look at me like, Terry, you're kind of you're kind of messing up here. But what do we do when that happens? You're like, oh, hey, you're not my friend anymore. No, those people are your friends. Those are the people who love you enough to tell you the truth. And that's rare. It's very rare. <laughs> A lot of us want to just get along to go along. And, and when, when you say you've got a, a, a cancer diagnosis, a lot of people will say, oh, I'm sorry. And then they pull back. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, or, or and they then, say, and I've done this, you know, they say, hey, if you need anything, let me know. And, and you're like, well, I'm sorry, I've got to go in the hospital. I have my leg amputated. I don't have time to let you know. But the same things you need to do at your house, you know, take out the garbage, go to the grocery shop and pick the kids up from school, walk the dog are the same things I have to do at my house. So if you love me and if you care about me, don't ask, just get involved. And so few of us do that. Yeah. Most of us just just backpedal and, and just, you know, and it, it would be really good. And that, that builds a sense of community as well. It does. You know, and uh, I, by the way, I applaud your daughter. How old was she when she did this? Uh, she was, you know, so 2019. So she was in like maybe freshman year, sophomore year in college. She's a bright girl. You've done a good job. She's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy. Good for her. So. And that that that's rare in, in and of itself because not a lot of women get that into that position. 
Well, no, unfortunately, or fortunately, she got my height. So she's six foot two and has an NBA three point shot. So she went to the Air Force Academy to play basketball and ultimately, I mean, had knee surgery her freshman year, didn't play after that, but got a tremendous education. And now she's an officer in the, the new branch of the military, the Space Force. Oh, that's pretty cool. We're that's very proud of her. By the way, in in your resume, you've done a myriad of things, which is why it's important for you to still be here so that you can impart some wisdom. One of the things that you did, you were actually a hostage negotiator. Now, we've seen lots of movies. Uh, Bruce Willis comes to mind and and others and uh, Samuel L. Jackson and and others come to mind that were hostage negotiators. Is that a true portrayal in any sense of the word or what you see on the movies? No, no. I I, and, so. and I get that question a lot. Um, and and I'll, I'll sort of tell you how it works so you can kind of understand. It's definitely like we were talking about a minute ago. It's, it's a team effort. Yes, there is one person that is negotiating with whatever the situation is. But then there's another negotiator who is sitting right next to that person with headphones on listening to everything that's going on. They're not saying anything, they're listening. And then there's a group, you know, that I used to call work in the crowd. So they're they're out talking to maybe the mother or the girlfriend or or whatever. Why are we here? What happened? What started this, et cetera, et cetera. So as a negotiator, you may be talking to somebody and the person next to you will hand you a note and the note will say, don't talk about his mother. Because what started all this and what, you know, the 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 group found out was he had a fight with his mother and, and, you know, he barricaded himself and now he's got a gun. He's threatening to kill himself. So you will get a note that'll say, don't talk about his mother. Okay, good. So it's, it's a team effort and how we go about doing this. Yes. There's one person negotiating, but could not do that by yourself. Wait, unless you were psychic and knew and knew (laughs) what was in the guy's head, but that's hard to do. Very, very. (laughs) So, so again, the, 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 the concept of team, yeah, and you, of course, you've heard that old expression. There's no I in team, right? Uh, um, and the team is paramount to your success. Whatever, whatever you're doing, even if you are just happy with what you're doing, but you need a sounding board. And it, by the way, it doesn't have to be somebody that you're married to. True. I I have a I have a good friend that uh, that I met six eight months ago who's become a really good friend, and she is very. <laughs> Okay, she's to a fault honest with me sometimes, but she's very, very honest with me. And I know that she does it from a place of positivity, caring, and love because she wants to see me succeed. And, and so as long as I know that and she knows that, then then that's, that is a good relate. And I implore everybody to have somebody like that in your life. I got two or three. I'm very lucky. Yeah, exactly. And and the more you can get into your life, keep those people around. I, and, you know, it's they're good for you. They're good for your mindset. You know, even when you're down, those are going to be the people that are going to lift you up. It's like, hey, Terry, I know what your goals are. You know, you're going down this road. That's not part of what you want. You know, you're making a mistake. Hey, you should go over here. Hey, you're having a tough day. Let's talk about it. Let's go to lunch or breakfast or something like that. Those are the people you need in your life because they help you on so many different levels. It's it it is so true, and when you have got that support system, it's it's like when when you were going to have chemo. I have always said, well, not always, but relatively recently, I have always said, you know, if I get cancer and they want to do, um, I'm 64. If they want to do chemo and radiation, and I might lose my hair. Wait a minute, um, but you know, if you know, you might you you might feel. <laughs> too late sorry but you might feel really bad and and all that kind of stuff and there's a real struggle in my mind as to whether or not i'd want to do it well three years ago my son had a daughter dang it so now because i have not seen that girl because they were he's in the he's in the air force and they were in japan for three years now they're in london for three years so i have yet to see her and uh, I, I would have to rethink my position because I'm the only grandparent left that she can be, that can, she can associate with. And so it's really would be important for me to have a relationship with her. And that's worth sticking around for, I think. 
And that goes back to purpose. You know, I, I, I mentioned my dad was, was dying of cancer when I graduated from college and he, he was in real estate and, and he worked up till two weeks before he died. And I really believe that if he had not had a purpose, he had not been able to go you know, to the office four days a week or whatever it ended up being, that he would have died a whole lot sooner. And, and that's the same way I feel. And I, you know, I sort of remembered that, sort of tucked it away. And then when I got sick, it's like, no, you can't just sit here and think about this and, you know, oh, woe is me and how terrible this is. You got to like, you know what? You're still alive. You're still breathing. As long as you're on this side of the dirt, there's still possibilities here. You know, so absolutely, you know, get out there and, and find your purpose. Even if you're, hey, I'm sick, you know, I'm, I'm dying. Okay, that's fine. But you're not dead yet. You're still here today. And you can make a difference in somebody's life. Absolutely. And I firmly believe that. And in fact, I had to retire medically because I fell a couple of times and had a couple of surgeries. And um, I had a choice. I could just sit around and just, or I could do what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing eight to 10 podcasts a week. I get to talk to great motivational people like you. And, uh, and I get to make a difference. And that is what it's all about. And if you can do that, even if your life is destined and, and as you and I both know, and we talked earlier, we're not in control of that. Right. We, we will die when we die. But if you can spend the last day, every day until that day, doing something meaningful, doing something meaningful for the planet, for others, for yourself, um, for your family, um, you will not have wasted that time and it will have been a life well lived. Absolutely. And I remember I heard a native American Blackfoot proverb years ago that was very simple, but it goes like this. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced, live your life. And I think those are the key words in this thing, live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. That's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. That, 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 that's a, that's a really cool saying right there. Yes. So, and, and that keeps you motivated and, and keeps, and keeps you working. It does. It, I, I mean, doing something that I feel, you know, I feel I make a difference. I, you know, I always say it's, it's nice people like me that allow me to, you know, allow me to come on to their show. And between our conversation, if we're going to make a difference in the life of somebody, then today's been a great day. And, and that's such a simple thing to do. It doesn't have to be, you know, we all think there's got to be this grand, you know, in order to make a difference, I've got to have this major impact. You don't. It's the small little things that you do for people. It's the kindness. It's the, hey, you know, that's one thing as a negotiator, you know, people were like, well, you know, what happens if you think that that person is, is considering suicide, considering killing themselves? And I used to always tell people, if you feel there's somebody in your life who might be in that situation, ask them. And they're like, well, if I ask them, I'm going to put the idea into their mind. No, you're not. You're not going to do that. If you ask them, hey, are you thinking, we did it all the time as negotiators. Like, hey, are you thinking of hurting yourself? Are you thinking of shooting yourself? Now, if they weren't, they'd be like, hey, no, you idiot. No, I'm not thinking of doing that at all. But if they were, you very well may have opened the door for them to step through to, oh my God, somebody cares. Somebody sees what I'm going through, even though I haven't been able to articulate it. And, oh, my God, you you have no idea. You may have just saved their life just by asking. I mean, they're going to fire on you if, you know, if if that's not the case. But I'd rather err on that side than on, oh, I didn't say anything. And then they ended up hurting themselves. I have a quick story that I'd like to tell if I can, which is right along those lines. Um, and this this personal story that happened in uh, 2002. My sister-in-law, her name is Sandy, and she had a congenital heart defect. And she was, her heart was actually backwards in her body. And because of that, they couldn't operate on her. And so they expected her to not live past her 20s. Well, she married my ex-wife's brother. And uh, they they had a nice life. And, and so, but when she turned 40, things went bad. And she ended up in the ICU. And then three months later, she passed away. Well, my brother-in-law was a stoic young man, and he was not interested necessarily in being open and asking for help. My uh, my ex-wife was not interested in offering such help because she that would have been made him weak, and and the father was kind of distant as well, and 
And so he's sitting in his home alone. And he gets a bill for half a million dollars from the hospital. He has problems at work. He has a short-term relationship. Then the girl steals from him and then leaves him. He doesn't feel like he's got anywhere to go, anybody to turn to. So he turned the gun on himself and killed himself. And uh, that was my father-in-law's responsibility. It was my ex-wife's responsibility and my responsibility that he that he felt so alone and felt had no recourse. So, and the reason I tell that story is because people need to know that the life that you impact, just like you were saying, is is important. And if you reach out to somebody who you know to be in pain, and I would even advocate if if to ask them, are you okay? Are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling like you're not going to be okay? And and let's get you some help. Let's get you the help that you need. Um, that would make a whole lot more sense than letting somebody sit there and end up feeling like they had nothing else to do but take their own life. It, it's sad. It, it, it really is. And I... I don't think we realize how much our lives have an impact on people that we have no idea who those people are. And I'll give you a quick story. I had one of my nurses that takes care of me when I get my infusions. When I first met her, she was already a nurse, but she was in training on the unit. And a couple of months ago, she was taking care of me by herself. And she's relatively young. She's about 25 years old. And she said, Terry, I've got a story I want to tell you, but I'm a little uncomfortable telling you. And I mean, I, I didn't really know how to respond to that. And I'm like, well, it sounds like I would like to hear that, but I hope you find the courage to tell me that. And eventually she did. She worked up the courage. And she said, when I first met you, she said, I was going to get out of nursing. She said, I'd had a very good friend of mine die. I was in a very dark place. I talked to my mom and dad. I was going to quit nursing and I was going to go to work for Amazon. And she said, and then I met you. And I see all the ugliness that you go through for your treatments, you know, five days a week and throwing up and shaking and all that. And I read your story and she said, having studied all that, I knew I was where I was supposed to be. Now, if she would have never told me that story, I would have had no idea that my life had had a positive impact on her. So I always ask people, who's out there that, you know, Kevin, who's out there who, you know, I would give anything to be in Kevin McDonald's shoes. I would do, you know, give anything to be in Terry Tucker's shoes. And, and I'll go back to John Wooden, you know, a, a basketball coach at UCLA who, who said, had a great saying, and I, I remember it, a careful person I want to be, a little person follows me. I dare not go astray for fear they may go the same way. So I, I think it's important for all of us to remember that our lives have an impact, have a touch point on people that we don't even know who they are. And I'm not telling you to live a life that's not true to yourself. You, you, you need to do that. But always remember, there's somebody who's looking at you and thinking, boy, I'd trade places with that person in a heartbeat. So our lives impact so many people we have no idea about. It, it truly is amazing. Now, when I was uh, <clears throat> doing this before, way back in 2003, um, I had a story of, of somebody that I really impacted their life, but I also drove a city bus in Seattle for 12 years. And I impacted as many people driving a city bus, either positively or negatively. I had the ability to choose how I was going to interact with all these people. And that we're talking people in three piece suits. We're talking people, homeless people. We're talking drug addicted people. We're talking people that of all stripes. I, I made it my mission because I felt like, and, and we all have the ability to do this. You may say something to somebody in a positive way. You will not know what the impact is, but you may be the only person to talk to them nicely all day long. And they will remember that long after that interaction is over. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm trying to remember what that quote from Maya Angela was about, you know, it's not what you say. Or, you know, people won't remember what you say. They won't remember what you do. They remember how you make them feel. And and yes. that is that is so true. You know, it, I don't remember what he said, but boy, he, he said something that just kind of resonated with me and he cared. It seemed like he cared about me. And you may have just been like, hey, how's it going today? And, and you know, and, and you're on with your day. But to that person, man, that was like you just gave him a thousand dollars or something like that. 
Oh, exactly. And we all have the ability to do that. Um, and it doesn't take being a special, doesn't take being a radio host. And I, mean, I was, I had as much of an impact as a bus driver as yeah. I, as I do, as I do doing this. And you know, it's funny. There was a kid that used to get on the bus because he loved buses. I don't mean he was uh, on the spectrum somewhere mm-hmm. and, uh, but he just loved buses. He loved riding the bus. He knew every route. He knew every bus type and he loved being on the bus. And so I let him act as conductor on on some trips so like i would go from um kent to green river college in in auburn which is about seven or eight miles had a bunch of stops he would announce every stop he would get off at every stop he would welcome people on (laughs) it was the funniest thing to watch him do that and to be nice to people and to have them go why is he being nice to me (laughs) and anyway anyway so he that was something that just made his week made and so we it became a thing and it got to the point terry where when he wasn't on the bus there were kids that would go that like at the college and pick up the same kids every day they'd go where's your where's your where's your assistant and they said well he's he's he had something else to do today and said oh that's too bad i was looking forward to seeing him it was in you know and and so it, i that had an impact on his life but it also had an impact on, and it's contagious. We it can do this for each other and it, it can grow and it can become, and it doesn't have to be, you know, a great big motivational coach or a, or a talk show host or anything else. It can be the simplest things. And we, a lot of us don't get that. How can we convince people that it's okay to do that? I, I think you, you know, it's kind of like everything else, you know, people talk a good game, but for me, it's always, what's your action sh- showing, you know, what are you doing? And I, and I think we need, just need to live it. We need to, you know, Hey, I'm going to be nice to people. I'm going to, and by my actions every day, maybe you'll pick up on that. I, I I'll, I'll never forget this. My first job out of college was at Wendy's international, the hamburger chain at their corporate headquarters in Dublin, Ohio. And I used to, you know, we're creatures of habit. We, you know, I, I would get to work at the same time and I'd ride up on the elevator with my secretary and, and sorry, they called them secretaries back then. So, you know, <laughs> my secretary and one of the vice presidents and the vice president was definitely not a morning person. He, you know, he'd get on the, on the elevator with his cup of coffee, go right to the back of the elevator and stand there. And it used to drive my secretary crazy. And so one day she was, she said to me, she said, you know what? Every morning from now on, I'm going to say something to him. Good morning. How's it going? How's your day or whatever? I want to force him to talk. And I mean, it went on for months. And I'm sitting and I know what she's doing. And he would one word answer, you know, how you doing today, Mike? Fine. You know, and that would be the extent of it. But over time, I mean, over several, I mean, like six, seven months, he eventually would get on the elevator and start being, oh, hi, Terry. Hi, Donna. How you doing? You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, now he's talking to it. And stuff like that. So it was really her trying to say, you know, I'm pulling. I know there's a nice guy in there. I'm trying to pull it out. And she would do that. I mean, she could have said, out oh, of heck with them. I'm just going to ride up with them in silence. And that's going to be the end of that. But it, I, I still remember that to this day. I remember being on those elevator rides with the two of them and just watching the, you know, the, the gamesmanship go on. And, you know, I'll bet you in his mind, he was thinking at, at some point in time, he thought, Boy, you know, I sure am being a jackass. This yeah. person is trying to be nice to me every day, and I don't give her the time of day. Right. That how that's not very nice. And no. then he decided that that he was going to be an actual human being. And plus the fact that she was not only was it a mission that she was on to to get that done, but she wanted to show him that she cared. Yeah. And and so that was that was uh, that was really important. What did you do for Wendy's, by the way? Well, I started out as as the uh, very exciting field marketing trainee. I think my most successful business accomplishment was gassing up the company cars of the field marketing managers. I, I, I mean, you know, I literally, you know, I mean, making copies, all that stuff, and then progressed to. I eventually, when I left there, I was a new product marketing supervisor. So I got to be involved in uh, the Wendy's day part when they put breakfast into their stores. You know, then they took it out and now that's back in, you know, we were looking at hot dogs. We did all kinds of different things that uh, it was just a lot of fun. And I was also there, uh, if you remember, when there was that little, you know, five foot nothing uh, older lady that used to walk around, where's the beef? <laughs> of course. <laughs> and uh, so I was there during during that time period. So it was, 
It was amazing. I mean, her name was Clara Peller. She was a former beauty operator in Chicago who had retired, had never been in show business before. And all of a sudden she's, you know, on one of the most successful ad campaigns of all times. So, How did you find her? I, I That I don't know. Uh, they, the advertising guys did that. I believe we had a, a, a national advertising agency, Dan Sir Fitzgerald Sample out of New York. They found her. I, I don't know how, but they they're the ones who found her. And and she I mean, I think Ronald Reagan used that, you know, where's the beef line when he was running for reelection and that. So there there are people that, that were alive at the time. We all remember it, it, I can I can vividly picture her little five foot frame going, <laughs> where's the beef? <laughs> You know, and she, and she was she was just incredible. So, um, but you're right; that was one of the biggest ad campaigns of all time, and it actually raised Wendy's sales quite a little bit. Oh, it was huge! I, I mean, you know, the the Academy Awards are you know what what actors get for great you know performances. The Clio is an advertising award. You know, people get Clios for great commercials and stuff like that. And we had several Clios just from that ad campaign, and yeah, it really boosted sales. And unfortunately, right after that, you know, the kind of the bottom fell out of the fast food industry. And uh, I, I saw the writing on the wall and figured it was time to move on. So, Well, you have done so many things in your life uh, and from being a cop and working at Wendy's and, and, and doing that. And uh, you've done and you've you've uh, you've done a lot of different stuff. And, and um, it's what was your favorite thing that you've done? Oh, absolutely. Being a policeman. Uh, my, my grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. So he was in Chicago during Prohibition, you know, when alcohol was outlawed in the United States. With, during the with Great Al Depression. Capone and all those guys. Yeah, and, and, uh, and exactly. And uh, was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun, taking a homicide suspect back to, uh, to the lockup. It, it was not a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle, but I mean, let's face it, trauma medicine in 1935 was a whole lot different than, you know, it is in, you know, 2022. And so when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, my dad was, oh, absolutely not. You're going to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out, get a great job, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. And that's what my dad wanted me to do. It wasn't what I felt my purpose, my passion was. And so I had a choice when I graduated from college. You know, my dad was sick and dying. I could be like, you know, sorry, dad, I'm going to go blaze my own trail and be a cop or out of love and respect for you, I will go into business. So my first two jobs, first one was at Wendy's, second one was as a hospital administrator. And I sort of joke, I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away and then I followed my own dreams. So I, uh, you know, I was a 37 year old rookie police officer, which by most accounts is pretty old to start that kind of work. Well, and it added at six foot eight to boot. Yeah. Did, yeah. did, did you did you drive around in a uh, um, in a in a squad car? I did. For uh, I had a partner. Uh, we we both were out of the same academy class. We we probably for about four and a half five years. We were in a marked car in uniform. You know, doing radio runs, DUIs, all that kind of stuff. And then I went and and I know you're going to find this funny. Then I went and became an undercover drug investigate <laughs> you know and, and oh, people, you're, in, you're inconspicuous yeah well and and that's the thing i i never changed my appearance i never grew a beard i never grew my hair long i never you know i kept the same appearance because in that industry and i'm sorry uh, illicit drugs is an industry what motivates that industry is greed and as long as you have money you'll find somebody to sell you drugs and and that's what our unit was we were a a street level kind of, of of unit we went after people who were selling on the corner and you know that would occasionally develop into something bigger and we would get to work with uh you know the the DEA and things like that which was which we love because you know for example like for me to to charge you with a gun charge I had to have the gun and the gun had a function it had to actually fire so you know before I could charge I had to take it down to you know criminalistics and fire it and that kind of stuff but for the feds you know, the feds are up on a wiretap with you, for example, and you mention the word gun, that's a federal gun charge. They never have to see the gun. They never have to collect the gun. They Nothing. That's why you hear all these drugs, you know, it's an 80 count indictment. Yeah, the guy said gun 50 times, you know, 50 of those are federal gun charges, you know. So we loved working with the feds because it was a lot easier 
to, to get people put away to, you know, serious people, real people that were really, you know, really pushing a lot of dope and hurting a lot of people. So. And I'm well, number one, I'm glad you're not a cop today. It, it would be a very, it's, it has changed over time. Yeah. And, and there is, uh, I was uh, reading an article yesterday about a county in Texas that 101 kids under 18 have been shot and killed in the last three years there. What is going on? Do you have any idea, Terry? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think uh, there's a lot of things. Uh, I think it's the breakdown of the family, you know, the, uh, the, the fact that, you know, there isn't somebody there to tell the kids what to do. I mean, where do we get our morals? Where do we get our values? We get those from our caregivers. Now, who are those caregivers? You know, and, and I worked, my partner and I were both white. We worked uh, an entirely, when we were running a, a beat in, in a car, you know, marked car in uniform, an entirely black area. And, you know, you would pick up a 13-year-old kid in the middle of October on a Wednesday night and have to take him home for a curfew violation. And, you know, you, you have to cite somebody for that to, you know, to go to court. Well, you want to cite mom. Well, he doesn't live with mom. You know, dad's in jail. Mom is addicted to crack and not in the family. His 85-year-old grandmother's taking care of him. You know, and, and you just look, that's like, you don't stand a chance. So I, I think the breakdown of the family is one issue. And, and the other issue is just the availability of guns. I remember my very last night in uniform, I was a sergeant. We got to run for somebody shooting outside of a, an apartment building. And we get there, we get to the apartment building. There are three guys playing video games. None of the guys lived in that apartment. And so, you know, we call them out, we, we run them, we, we search them, no guns, no nothing. We search the apartment, no guns. And right before we left, I said, mm, I just have a feeling that they're here. I just don't know where they are. So I'm like, let's take one more sweep. And we did. And there was a drop ceiling. And in the drop ceiling were five guns. And so, I, I mean, we can't prove that those guys were the ones shooting or anything like that. So we took the guns to confiscate them. And the night chief was a captain who'd been on for like 30 years. And I remember we were processing the guns and he came into the district and he said, you know, Terry, when I started, we were lucky if we'd get one gun off the street a week you guys get four or five guns a night. So the amount of guns I think is proliferated in, in this country and, and the bad guys don't care about gun laws. They don't, you know, I mean, look at all the crime in Chicago. They have some of the toughest gun laws in, you know, in this, in the United States. So I think it's a breakdown of the family. I think there's more availability of guns and life is too cheap anymore. You know, it, it's, it's, yeah, I'll, I don't like what you said. Boom. I'll shoot you. I, I don't care. What? I mean, when I was growing up, you know, like with something, you, you got in a fight or something, but you didn't kill the person. Right. Right. It's, it's, it, times have changed. Yeah. There are, there are near as I can count. It's taken me a while to do this, by the way. Um, but there are like 336 million people that live here in the United States. And we have 390 plus million guns, um, give or take. And uh, it's it's and you're right. It's the breakdown of the as a, as a former bus driver, I can tell you, there were so many times that I would have three women and they'd be toting five or six kids, not a man any, anywhere. Um, and you gotta appreciate a woman who's trying to raise that number of kids by herself, yes. and you've got the dad who is either in jail or off making more kids. Um, and doing doing silly stuff like that, and it's uh, I think that we as a fun as a people need to come back to to reality and say that we need to take care of each other and to work better at at making sure that the kids don't get because I can't tell you the number of teenage kids that would get on my bus and wouldn't pay and were and were difficult and and that kind of stuff because they could um and stuff and there was no there was no mom at home necessarily and stuff so we we really here have got have got some interesting problems we have to deal with but i digress because this is positive talk radio <laughs> and we're not supposed to talk about stuff like that but because of your background as a cop i just wanted to touch bases with you but i think that we if we all work together and we bring all of this information out 
of what we can do together to make things happen. I, I, as an example, I, here is a great story. Can I tell you this one real quick? Sure. I interviewed a gal last uh, Thursday. She does a group called 100 Women of Snohomish County. And these women, what they do is they get together three times a year. Each of them gives 100 bucks. They take this hundred bucks and then they, 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 uh, pick three charities and then they pick the winner of the three charities. They put the, all the charities in a hat and there's these C, 501 C3s. Mm -hmm. And then they pick out the charities and then they award them this money. Now they don't take any money out. It's, they're not a charity themselves. Mm -hmm. So what they do is they present this, this, uh, this charity with like a bunch of checks and cash and stuff for them to use um because all they are is acting as the conduit mm -hmm. and they get together and the last time they bought backpacks for kids full of food because the kids weren't eating because they were either homeless or they 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 had no money they weren't eating anywhere but school so it's it was rem it's remarkable when we get together and this this group is not even a 501c3 that is not making any money from this is doing this out of the good of the goodness of their heart in the last two years has raised a hundred and two thousand dollars wow. for good at a hundred dollars a time that's amazing. so that, that that gives me hope that that we can work together to really make a difference and to make it happen for folks and that's i just wanted to tell that story because we told the bad story i wanted to tell a good one no you're right i mean we can do so much together and, and that's one thing i learned as a negotiator is the importance of listening and not listening to respond but listening to understand and and we're all guilty of this you know it's like hurry up kevin say what you're going to say because i want to get my two cents in versus well well kevin Okay, I understand what you just said, or I heard what you just said. I may agree with it. I may not agree with it, but help me understand where you're coming from. And, you know, if we do that, that's a dialogue. That's, you know, that's wanting, that's connecting with each other as opposed to, you know, we're just screaming at each other. When we're both screaming at each other, I can't hear what you're saying. You can't hear what I'm saying. Nothing gets accomplished. But if we listen to understand, we can get so much done because we make that connection with each other. You know, there's an, there's an old saying that says, uh, um, there's a reason why God gave you two ears and one mouth <laughs> so that you can, you can actually listen more and listening. You know, I learned, I was in sales management for a long time and I've learned that listening is an art form because yeah. it, because a lot of people, including my sales team, and I would have to coach them on this. They were listening to respond yeah. or to react. They weren't listening to absorb the information and then make an informed, like, and then say, so what I heard you say was, and then repeat what they heard, is that right? Uh, because a lot of times we speak and we don't necessarily say the appropriate, say the things that we really mean to say. Um, but but we, if you listen, you will be able to achieve a lot better than if you're just trying to respond to this is how I'm going to respond to his argument kind of thing. And it, it, it would work a lot better for us, I think. Well, and it certainly sounds like, I mean, I've always been taught that the, the best salespeople are not necessarily the best talkers. They're the best listeners. And I Correct. think you just confirmed that. So they are. Well, if you can, if you can ascertain somebody's desires, needs, and wants, especially in business, if you're trying to fill that need with the product that you have, the best way to figure that out is by them telling you what they need. Right. And if you're not listening, you don't know what you need. You're just trying to sell them something they might not need right. or might not be a good fit. And right. so, so you're right. No, that that's absolutely true. So by the way, we've been talking with Terry Tucker and you can go to motivationalcheck.com, right? Yes, sir. And you need to talk to him because he, you are available for someone to, for you to coach. Today. I am available to coach. I'm available to speak. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm starting a membership program around my bucket. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of busy right now, too, in addition <laughs> to, you know, being treated for cancer every third week. So. Well, and I, and I just for those of you that are just joining us or didn't catch the whole thing, Tara's been fighting cancer for 10 years. 
He's continuing the good fight. He's doing remarkable, even though it hasn't been easy for him. He's got a good support group, and he's he's fighting the good fight. And I really, I I wish and pray for you the life that you want to live for the rest of your life. And I appreciate that. I mean, it it, it means a lot to me when people say they pray for me. It's not just some oh yeah right. I, that that means something to me. I, I mean, it 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 gives me strength. So thank you for that. And everybody that's listening will also be sending you positive energy. And uh, because you are, you are one of those, you're one of those people that we need to keep around. Well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Because you're a good man. You're thank a good you. man. And, and you've had a full life and uh, you've done, a, you've done a lot of things, but you, you haven't, you have all this, you know, this is the thing that kills me. We spend our entire life acquiring all this wisdom, all this experience. And then one day, um, I, I used to do something called family legacies where I'd interview older folks mm-hmm. and the, the innate, um, confidence and the ability that they have in the, and the, the experience that they've gained over time is invaluable. And then we lose that. And then we have to, you know, so it, it, it's great that you are working to impart your wisdom on people because you can help people. I, I, I try. I mean, you think back, you know, to the native American people, I mean, they valued, ancestry you know they valued you know the the elders in in their community and things like that and i I do podcasts all over the world and you know in the united states ancestry not so much a big deal but in a lot of countries you know it is you know my grandparents set the table for my parents my parents set the table for me now i'm setting the table you know for my daughter and her generation so i mean if you think about it that way i mean you you really want to ask questions as a young person, you know, get information, get knowledge. Don't think you know it all. I didn't know it all when I was young. I, I don't know it all now, but I know a whole lot more. <laughs> <laughs> I've always said, if I could just know what I know now when I was 20. Yeah, exactly. Oh man. <laughs> think of the things that you could do. By the way, you do other podcasts, do you now, huh? I do. I've probably, probably been a guest on, I don't know, four or 500 podcasts around the world. So, uh, so uh, what do you, what do you think? How, how, you know, like, uh, how do I write? I think you're doing a great job. Well, thank you. <laughs> no, I really do. I, I mean, it, it's, it's engaging. It's, you know, having conversations is, I think, what people like. It's, you know, the ones that I find the boring ones are question, answer, question, answer, question. No, I mean, if we can engage and play off of each other, then that's what people want to hear. They want to hear a conversation, not a question and answer session. Well, and, and my job is to just bring it out in you and it's, you make my job extraordinarily easy Well, thank uh, you. because you are, and, uh, I, I really wish you the best. I and appreciate so, it. Now it's time for me to step aside and to give you a moment to say whatever you would like, whatever's on your mind. How about if I end with a story? That would be great. Okay. Uh, always been a big fan of Westerns growing up, uh, Mom and dad used to let me stay up and uh, and watch Gunsmoke and Bonanza. And my favorite was Wild Wild West. Uh, 1993, the movie Tombstone came out. Uh, and it starred uh, Val Kilmer as a man by the name of John Doc Holliday and Kurt Russell as a man by the name of Wyatt Earp. Now, my Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp. Pardon me? My favorite movie of all time. Oh, yeah. Great movie. Uh, Wyatt Earp and, and Doc Holliday were two living, breathing human beings who walked on the face of the earth. They're not made up characters for the movie. And Doc was called Doc because he was a dentist by trade, but pretty much Doc Holliday was a gunslinger and a card sharp. And Wyatt Earp, his entire adult life had been some form of a lawman. So these two men from entirely divergent backgrounds somehow come together and form this very close friendship. And at the end of the movie, Doc Holliday is dying of tuberculosis at a sanitarium in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about three hours from where I live. The real Doc Holliday died in that sanitarium and he's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. And Wyatt at this point in his life is destitute. He has no money, has no job, has no prospects for a job. So every day he comes to play cards with Doc and the two men pass the time that way. And in almost this last scene in the movie, the two men are talking about what they want out of life. And Doc says, you know, when I was younger, I was in love with my cousin, but she joined a convent over the affair, but she's all I ever wanted. And then he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? Wyatt kind of nonchalantly says, I just want to lead a normal life. 
And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal. There's just life. And get on with living yours. Kevin, you and I probably know people who are sitting out there listening to us. They're like, well, when this happens, I'll have a normal life. Or when that occurs, I'll have a successful life. Or when this arises, I'll have a significant life. I guess what I'd like to leave you with is this. Don't wait. Don't wait for life to come to you. Get out there. Find the reason you were put on the face of this earth. Live that reason with your unique gifts and talents. And at the end of your life, if you do that, I'm going to promise you two things. Number one, you're going to be a whole lot happier. And number two, you're going to have a whole lot more peace in your heart. That's, that is a terrifically positive statement for you to make. And, and it, if people would follow that, we'd be so much better off. It, it, <clears throat> I was interviewing a, a gal not too long ago and uh, I got a phone call. And the lady said, um, you know, I'm thinking about following my passion and really doing something that I really, really, really want to do. And, um, and just, well, why aren't you? She said, well, you know, I got social security and I can live on my social security, but, but, uh, um, I I've got this second job and it, it just kind of adds to it. So I can travel a little bit and stuff. Is that what you want to do? No, that's, I don't want that job. I don't want to do that. Why aren't you far? Well, I'm 70 years old. So, and he said, you're 70 years old. If not now, when are you going to wait till you're 80? Go live your life, make a difference, have fun with it, do what you choose to do. And, uh, and as this, this young person says, don't wait, do it today. Terry Tucker has been our guest. It's, it is, I got to tell you, my friend, it is my pleasure to interview you. Will you come back? And I want to keep tabs on you. See how you're doing. I would love to Kevin. I've enjoyed talking with you as well. And I really appreciate you having me on. Well, I'll tell you what, young man, you take care of yourself and, and make sure that you're, and I know you do this, you're going to make a difference every day in somebody's life. And that is so cool. I appreciate and, it. And I thank you so much. You wait right there. I'll be right back. Thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of kmmedia.pro. Please visit our website, oddly enough, named kmmedia.pro for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great, positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to each other because each other's all we've got. We'll see you next time.